most of us would be able to recall that back in June, we started the book of Corinthians. And we are to end up at chapter 4. <laughs> so we continue now in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, just to establish a, a bit of context and to link the last message with this, this message. We considered in chapter 1 verses 1 to 9, we established three major points. And this is by way of review. We established that the church is sanctified in Christ Jesus. We say that what is meant by sanctified in Christ is not progressive sanctification, but positional sanctification where God took us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, a wanting act of God where he did that. We also established that the church is enriched in Christ Jesus. We say that the church, in, the church's enrichment came as a result of its union with Christ and that God had enriched the church in all knowledge and in all speech. And thirdly, thirdly, we found out that the church is sustained in Christ Jesus. We say that the truth of the church being sustained or preserved is not predicated on its own industry or on its giftedness, but on the faithfulness of Almighty God. So as we continue, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to verse 17. The big idea here is that Christians should be visibly united to one another because Christians are objectively united to one another. Or to state it in another way, because God in Christ has united all Christians, that unity should be visibly seen. Now to flesh out this point, this big idea, or to argue it from the text, I want to make two points, or to give two injunctions. One, be united in mind and judgment. And two, be united in the priority of the preaching of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, after having reminded the Corinthian church of the high theology of Christian unity, calls for real, practical, brother-to-brother, down-to-earth, day-to-day unity. And this the Apostle does by making an appeal. He leads into the subject with a tender appeal and with an affectionate address. He calls them brothers. Further, he appeals to them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The full title heightens the solemnity of the appeal and the one named Jesus stands against all other party names. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, there's only one exhortation here in general which is expressed first in general terms that all of you agree and is then explained in the negative form that there be no divisions among you and then in the positive but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment now in calling for unity the apostle shows what unity does not look like and then he shows what unity looks like the apostle Paul is saying unity does not look like divisions The Greek word he uses for divisions here is the word schisma, from which we get our English word schism. (laughs) It means a cleft or a tear, and then metaphorically a division or dissension. Paul had been informed of the divisions that arose in the Corinthian church by Chloe's people, or as the King James would put it, by the house of Chloe. And Paul, like any good apostle in Christ Jesus, 
writes this letter to set wrong things right. What occurred is that some kind of partisan mentality arose among the believers in Corinth and they were lining up themselves behind their favorite teachers. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. Still others, I follow Cephas. And then the last group said, I follow Christ. Now Paul was commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. So probably the Gentile converts in Corinth had, may have had some special inclination to him, seeing that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So probably they were his man. Sorry, he was their man. Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew, that is, a Jew from Alexandria. He was distinguished for literary culture and eloquence. So probably the more highly educated ones in Corinth may have gravitated to him. The ones who went to school at Harrison College and QC may have really liked Apollos a lot. <laughs> and we can read about that in Acts chapter 18. <laughs> we can read about that in, in Acts 18 verse 24. Now there was also the Cephas party. Cephas being the Aramaic form of the name Peter. Now those who were in this party may have reasoned that Paul was a Christian. Sorry, that P- P- Peter was a Christian before Paul. And that he was an apostle before Paul. He was the leader of the twelve. Or whatever their reason, for them, they felt that there was something about Cephas that appealed to them. And then there was the I follow Christ party. Now some speculated whether this party was just tired of the other three parties. And so, <laughs> and so said, we follow Christ and not any human p- person. Or whether they had some distinctive teaching or whether they claim some special relationship to Christ that they denied the other groups. But whatever their reasons were, may no doubt about it, the apostle still saw it fit to admonish them. Now we, we may be tempted to think within ourselves that we would never be guilty of this sin. But really is this partisan mentality beyond our sinful natures? Is it really beyond the reach, the sinful nature that we have? I think the answer is no. Our fallen condition tends to disunity and loves to set the one party against the other. Is this not what happened in the garden with our first parents? The serpent sought to create division between humanity and God. He sought to set human beings against their creator. And ever since this took place, mankind has been causing divisions. Now, when Adam sinned, there was that schisma between man and God, that tearing away of the sweet communion between man and God. Nevertheless, God gave the promise of the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, whose heel would be bruised in the process. And we find that in Genesis 3.15. And we understand that the seed of the woman is none other but Jesus Christ, who crushed the serpent's head by destroying his works in his perfect life, vicarious death and victorious resurrection procuring salvation for all that would believe on him and guaranteeing them eternal life in the new heavens and in the new earth one songwriter said all the love that drew salvation's plan all the grace that brought it down to man all the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary that mighty gulf that infinite divide between the holy God and sinful man, Christ Jesus, span for us who could not 
who cannot span that gulf. Um, when, watched our, when you watched our witnesses come, come around to you and they try to somehow say, try to teach you or tell you that Christ is not God. And we think of the, the infinite divide between a holy God and sinful man. And then, to, then, to, then, they, then they are trying to come and tell you that somehow a creature, a created being, could span that infinite gulf between God and man. Only an, a being infinite in his value and in his worth could span such an infinite chasm between the Father and us. Only a being of infinite worth and value. When, when we think of that holy wrath and just anger in God, only an infinite being can, could satisfy it's not that God could create a new man or something and say, well, do for this other sinful man. No, he still would not be a being of infinite worth. And then they would try to come wrong to tell you utter stupidness. <laughs> utter stupidness. We are utterly incapable, but Christ did it on our behalf. He spanned that divide between us and God. When we think of Christ in his mediatorial work as, me, as me mediator, He's the one that placed his hand on both God and us. Could a creature come and place his hand on the Father to, to touch? Could a sinful creature like me or you put his hand on the Father? No, no. Christ had to be God and able to put his hand on both and to bring man back in right relationship with God. In response to these divisions, the Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. One, he asks, is Christ divided? Of course, the answer must be no. As Christ is incapable of division, as there can be but one Christ, the church cannot be divided. Christ is one, and the church which is his body must be one. Paul also asks, was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul redeem you? Were you purchased with Paul's blood so that you belong to him? These questions point to the unthinkable. None other but Christ could have accomplished the crucial work of redemption. Believers bear no such relation even to inspired teachers as to justify their being called by their names. They are called Christians because they are worshippers of Christ and because they belong to him and are consecrated to him. Paul also asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? That is in reference to Paul, so that he should be the object of your faith and the one whose name you should confess. Leon Morris in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says, the name, concept of a name, in antiquity meant far more than it does with us today. It stood for the whole personality. It summed up the whole person. The preposition in or into, as in being baptized, into, implies entrance into fellowship and allegiance, such as exists between the Redeemer and the redeemed. He goes on to say that there could be no suggestion that Paul had done or said anything to bring his converts into such a relationship to him personally. He had pointed men to Christ. Charles, Hard, Charles, Charles Hodge in his commentary on 1 Corinthians said concerning baptism, 
all Christians are baptized into Christ and not into the apostles, much less any uninspired teacher. Therefore, it is Christ whom they should confess and by whose name they should be called. Christ Jesus has with his blood purchased the church and has brought together as one Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, educated and uneducated, intellectual and average. All the divisions that we put up in the church, he has caused us all to sit with him together in heavenly places. And you find that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. All of our schisms and divisions could never accomplish this. This only, sorry, all of our schisms and divisions could never accomplish this. Only the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross could do this. As sinners, we spend so much time building divisions and categories for ourselves with the hope that somehow we would show ourselves to be better than the next man. You know, like the, the thief would pick up the nation newspaper and he goes to the court assizes and he see a man that get charged for molesting a child and he will say well at least <laughs> I don't do that so you put yourself in you know in a category yes and then the child molester will look at the man who's caught in, in adultery and say at least I ain't got no boy wife you know and then the adulterer will look at a person who may be caught for sodomy and say at least I don't like me and you know we, we build these divisions and put Put ourselves in with the hope that somehow we would somehow justify ourselves but not before a holy God we are all in the same division we're all in the same category sinful sinners corrupt depraved immoral stubborn rebellious unclean and the list goes on but praise God that there is one remedy for all of us in the category of sinners and that remedy is the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought us out of the, out of the division of dead in trespasses and in sins and into the division of being alive in him. <clears throat> now I like the Apostle Paul tenderly appeal to anyone here tonight who is unsaved who has never trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation to anyone here who might be building self-righteous divisions and with, with the hope thinking that somehow that will justify them before a holy God, I am appealing to you to stop trusting in your self-righteous divisions and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. <clears throat> and we remember our bigger day again that Christians are objectively united, therefore we should be visibly united. True brotherly Christian biblical unity does not look like Christians alienating themselves from each other on the grounds of ethnicity or social status or educational achievements or economic standing or any unbiblical category that we may erect. Now after showing what unity does not look like, namely divisions, he shows what unity does look like. He urges them to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. The word mind here refers to the intellect or understanding or perception. And the word judgment refers to opinion. What Paul envisions here is a common internal sentiment and belief and doctrine being expressed 
externally in unity of opinions and doctrines and also shown in unity in decision making. Let our thoughts, words and actions be guided by the word of God and we will be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And now we know that sometimes thoughts get a little carried away with this portion of scripture here as though what Paul means is opinion cloning that somehow we are to clone our opinions so, so if I ask you for example what do you think about England leaving the EDEU you must come up with the same opinion as me no that's not what Paul means here but a unity in doctrine and in opinion in God's word Matthew Henry writes in the great things of religion be of one mind and where there is not unity of sentiment still let there be unity of affection it is not in I guess it is not in every single minute thing in the Bible that we will agree on but where there is still that difference in opinion let us have that unity of affection CRBC is a young church about one year old But let us pray that God will grant us that unity of mind and judgment in our doctrines. That unity of mind and doctrine in our love for the lost. In our love for each other. In our love for this community. In our love for the gospel. When it comes to decision making. But let us pray that God would grant us unity in mind and judgment. In how we steward our finances. In how we delegate and exercise authority. In how we delegate and accomplish our chores, but let us pray that God will grant that objective unity which ought to be visibly seen in us. Now moving on to our second point, be united in the priority of the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In this verse, the Apostle Paul categorically states his chief duty, and that duty was to preach the gospel. He states that he was sent or commissioned to preach, and that that preaching was superior even to sacraments like the baptism. Nor was Paul alone in this conviction, for this was also the conviction of the, of the, other, 12, of the other 12 apostles. In Acts 6.2, we read in verse 1 about a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists concerning the neglect of their widows in the daily distribution. The counsel of the apostles to the early church was that they should select from amongst themselves seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom they would appoint to this task because they said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In verse 4 of Acts 6, the apostle said, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So we have the apostles, the other apostles, in agreement with the apostle Paul. Our minds think immediately of the great commission given to the church by that great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the disciples were to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things that Christ had commanded. In Mark 16 verse 15, the apostles were to go into all the world and to proclaim or preach the gospel to the whole creation. 
in Luke 24, verses 40, verse 47, which is a reference to the Great Commission, repentance and forgiveness is to be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations. In St. John chapter 20, verse 21, Christ said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christ also made this statement in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 18. Even in Acts 1, verse 8, many regard this as part of the Great Commission. Christ said, the disciples would receive power from the Holy Spirit to witness about Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The, the website Got Questions says, Jesus gave this commandment to the apostles shortly before he ascended into heaven. And it essentially outlined what Jesus expected the apostles and those who would follow them to do in his absence. Charles Hodge in his commentary on verse 17 says, and I quote, I baptize few, for I was not sent to baptize, but to preach. The commission was go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. The main thing was to make disciples. Recognizing them as such by baptism was subordinate, though commanded. Baptism was a work that the apostles seemed to have generally left to others. And we will see that in Acts 10 verse 48. During the apostolic age and in the apostolic form of religion, truth stood immeasurably above external rights. The apostasy of the church consisted in making rights more important than truth. The apostles' manner of speaking of baptism as subordinate to preaching is therefore a wonder to those who are disposed unduly to exalt the sacraments. End of quote. Now listen to Paul in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the thing is, this is coming from a man who was imprisoned in Philippi, who was sent out of Thessalonica, who was also sent out of Berea for his own safety, who was laughed at in Athens, who was stoned in Galatia. And yet this same Apostle Paul could say in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also at Rome. And so it is clear from Paul's lifestyle that Paul believed in the priority of the preaching of the gospel. Because if Paul did not believe in that, I mean, by the time those trials and persecutions start, I don't think Paul would say, I'm ready and eager to preach the gospel at Rome. So Paul was a man who had this resolve in him that the chief duty of the church was to preach the gospel of Christ. So we're saying, be united in the priority of the preaching of the gospel. The partisan mentality and the divisions and quarreling in the church of Corinth caused them to get their priorities wrong. Paul is reminding them of the priority of the gospel. When divisions enter a church, the priority of the gospel goes further and further down the scale because other things will soon supplant it. Church dinners, picnics, Christmas programs, Easter programs, 
fears, for your practice. Again, not that anything is really wrong with these things as such, but these things are not necessarily what the church is called to do. But even good things like the sacraments and singing. And I guess we could all like think of some church that we might know of or have been in personally <clears throat> that really took the emphasis off of the preaching of the gospel and put it somewhere else. I remember my wife and I, we were at a church and to be honest, I think the emphasis of this church was on, on, on singing. It was singing like so much sounds. Yeah, okay, they were theologically sound, but still. Yeah, it was just song after song after song. And then when it comes to the word, you might get, I don't know, probably what, 15 minutes or so. And, 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 and that seems to be, be happening more and more. But Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of the priority of the gospel. And I guess it's because that they would have they lost sight of this, that these divisions probably became, began, began to set in. Here at CRBC, but let us pray that God will grant us the wisdom to keep superior things superior and subordinate things subordinate. Paul describes his preaching of the gospel in the latter half of verse 17 as not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Leon Morris says, some at least of the Corinthians were setting too high a value on human wisdom and human eloquence in line with typical Greek admiration for rhetoric and philosophy. In the face of this, Paul insists that preaching with words of human wisdom or cleverness was no part of his commission. That kind of preaching would draw people to the preacher. It would nullify the cross of Christ. The faithful preaching of the cross leads people to put their trust not in any human device, but in what God has done in Christ. A reliance on rhetoric will cause trust in men, the very opposite of what the preaching of the cross is meant to effect. Matthew Henry says, Paul had been bred up himself in Jewish learning at the feet of Gamaliel, but in preaching the cross of Christ, he laid his learning aside. He preached a crucified Jesus in plain language and told the people that that Jesus who was crucified at Jerusalem was the Son of God and Savior of men and that all who would be saved must repent of their sins and believe in him and submit to his government and laws. He goes on to say this truth needed no artificial dress. It shone with the greatest majesty in its own light and prevailed in the world by its divine authority and demonstration of the Spirit without any human help. The plain preaching of a crucified Jesus was more powerful than all the oratory and philosophy of the heathen world. End of quote. There's a real danger here that the Apostle Paul, that, that the Apostle Paul pointed out to the Corinthian church. And a real danger here that must be pointed out for us. If we fail to preach the gospel, we are wrong. If we change the gospel, we are wrong. If we try to put the gospel in humanistic clothes, we are still wrong. If we try to tailor the gospel to suit the different groups of society, we are wrong again. The gospel is not there to champion the cause of the LGBTQ or the feminist woman or the Muslim man or the poor man, or the underprivileged man, or the white man, 
or the black man, or the capitalist man, or the Marxist man, the democratic man, or the communistic man, the man at the right or the left, the far left, or the center, the liberal, or the liberal de democrat, or whatever else set we have in society. The gospel is there to declare the righteousness of God and call sinners to repent and believe in Christ Jesus. So let us at CRBC never think that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs power from our universities or flowery speech from our dictionaries. No, the, pre the plain preaching of Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the power of the Holy Spirit is all that is needed. We don't need to help God. We don't need to bring him up to date with our postmodern thinking, our philosophies. We, don't, we just need to preach Christ plainly. Now, if, if we tell unrepentant sinners that their lifestyle is alternative, we, may, we merely point out that it is just other or different. No, we need to tell them that their lifestyle is wicked in the sight of God and bring down the full spiritual and moral aspects to bear on their heads. If we tell men that Christ came to bring social justice, we cause them to think that man's ultimate need is somehow economic or social. No, man's ultimate need is to be forgiven. To be forgiven of his rebellion against God. And that forgiveness comes through a crucified redeemer. I remember some years ago, I can't remember what the program was named, but I saw it on TV. This church, I think somewhere in the States, and the man was, that was preaching that Christ came to save the world. And by the world, he meant the environment. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. And he had an aquarium on a desk like that. And in this aquarium was soil, as in earth, dirt. And he was telling people, come up and put your hand in there and see what Christ came to die for. And they were preaching an environmental gospel that Christ came to save the earth, as in the literal dirt, yes. And that was what was actually being preached in North America. And I was, to be honest, I was really angry. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was really, honestly speaking, I was really grieved inside that men could actually stoop to that level as to pervert the gospel and to preach an environmental gospel or some kind of a climate change gospel, you know, sustainable. You tell me, hey, your lifestyle is not sustainable. <laughs> no, but we don't need to be... You see, you see those those words, that is the jargon of the world. When we go back to the world with their own jargon, they're going to be like, B, you get that from me? Th those are the words that we coin. It's the world that coin all those words in terms of sustainable development, climate change, or Christ generally Christian people, as far as they know, have not coined those terms. So don't let us go back to them, giving them their own words and phrases. Let us go to them with what God has given us. We have our own words, terms, and phrases. They have theirs, their own words, terms, and phrases. We can clash. And then at the end of the day, we can see who wins. And I'm sure that the church can stand tall. When the smoke clear, the church. Yeah. Because the church is upholded by the omnipotent 
arms of God. So we can lose. We can win. Yeah. In Paul's mind, it would be the things like these that would empty the cross of its power. If, if we go to the world, all their rhetoric, no. But we can lose. We need to stay on our firm foundation on our worldview. The world has known many attempts at unity. But Alexander the Great tried to unify the world under Greek culture and Greek government. Nebuchadnezzar tried to unify the world under Babylonian culture and government. Charles the Great, also known as Charlemagne, King of the Franks, he also tried to unify Europe in the latter half of the 8th century and the beginning of the 9th century AD. And guess what? He failed. The present European Union that we now have under its presidents are trying to unify Europe. Emperor Selassie, in his day, tried to create African unity. And the list can go on and on and on. But even the Caribbean and our, but our parents and, and, and our grandparents will tell us about the Federation between 1958 and 1962. Even the Caribbean tried to bring uh, unity. And they all failed. But let us remind ourselves of the big idea tonight. That God in Christ has unified all Christians. And that unity should be visibly seen.